Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this edition of the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Jim McKelvey to the show today. He is a serial entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, artist, and author of the Innovation Stack. He is the co-founder of Square and served as the chairman of its board until 2010 and still serves on the board of directors. In 2011, his iconic card reader design was inducted into the Museum of Modern Art. McKelvey founded Invisibly, an ambitious project to rewire the economics of online content in 2016. He is a deputy chair of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you, Tiffany. This is going to be fun. Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun because we're going to start out with what I call bullish and bearish. Uh, Bullish is your for it. Bearish is your against it. Then we'll dig into a couple of them if you want to. But this is just fun questions to kind of get the juices flowing. And uh, now my audience looks forward to these crazy questions. So are you ready? Bullish or for it? Bearish or against it? Got it. All right. First one. Time travel. Bullish or bearish? Oh, bullish. Yeah. See, you were surprised, right? (laughs) I told you it was going to be fun and totally off topic. Okay. Uh Bullish on time travel. All right. The next one. Food trucks. Bullish. Yeah, me too. All right. Third one, maybe a little more. I have to give you a little more uh, color on this one, but there's this new service that will take a picture of you and provide a cardboard cutout for you to see your team playing live, although you're not there in person. Bullish or bearish? Oh, bearish. (laughs) So I saw that and I go, it's kind of creepy. No, the, the, the fewer pictures of me there are, the better. <laughs> okay, we'll go with that one. That's a good one. All right. All right. So I am so thrilled to have you on because uh, because of just the incredible body of work that you've been able to do and, and just being an amazing uh, entrepreneur. Um, but I'd love to start with wh- when did you realize that uh, you, you're kind of your entrepreneur's journey, right? When did you realize that that was really where you felt you needed to focus your attention? Uh, well, I, as you probably noticed from my resume, there's not a lot of focus. Um, it goes all the way all over the place. So I don't know the focus is anything I've ever claimed. Um, but I started to get off track uh, first uh, semester in college. I was a freshman studying economics. I took a computer science class with a terrible textbook and decided to rewrite the textbook, knowing nothing about my subject. Um, and it led me down this crazy path where I realized that I was able to do stuff without formal qualifications. Well, I mean, that sums it up (laughs) and I agree with you, right? It's kind of like you accidentally find your way, uh, without qualifications. Like I don't have my MBA, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like there are certain things, it's just kind of like the school of hard knocks, I guess. Yeah. I mean, look, there's some stuff you should definitely be qualified for, but, uh, I've spent my life sort of succeeding in areas where I had no formal qualifications and I see no reason to stop now. And, and so what got you the entrepreneur bug? Was it that first sort of exposure to saying, I could do this and I might be able to do it a little bit better? You know, I never really thought of it as entrepreneurship. I was always just focused on problems that I was frustrated with. And uh, it, it later became this term that I came to discover was called entrepreneurship. But um, at the time, it wasn't this big label or anything. It was just I was frustrated by a bunch of stuff that didn't exist and I wanted to build it. And, you know, we've been talking a lot lately. Obviously, this is not a concept that's new, that kind of jobs to be done, right? There's problems. How do you identify it? How do you fill that hole? And 
and more so than people don't buy a you know quarter inch drill bit they buy the hole but really they don't buy the drill bit or the hole they buy the shelf on the wall <laughs> that's what they're buying a way a means to an end so you know you've started one of the uh you know most well-known companies in square and and when it was what what sort of led you down that path what was the moment in time if you can remember where you said wow th- there is some need here and and i think we can fill it so it was funny jack dorsey used to work for me at another company that i have and uh he came home for christmas in 2008 we both lived in st louis and uh he was visiting his family and uh he'd just been kicked out of twitter so he told me the story of how they kicked him out of twitter and i said we should go get even with those guys for what they did to you and he was like well jim why don't we do something more positive and just start a new company so um so Jack and I agreed to start a new company and we didn't have any idea what we we're going to do. So uh, we cast around for a couple of ideas and we're, we're about to start working on this uh, journaling app, which I think neither one of us were really excited about. But I went back to St. Louis to pack up my stuff and I was in my glass studio and a lady wanted to buy a piece of glass, but she only had an American Express card and I couldn't take an Amex card and I lost this sale. And as I did that, I was talking to her. It was a phone order. I was talking to her on an iPhone. And I was like, my God, why, why doesn't this iPhone magically transform into a credit card machine? Because it magically transformed into a book or a map or a you know radio player or a television. Like it, 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 it was always this magic thing that became whatever I wanted to, but it, it didn't become a credit card player. So I or a credit card reader. So I said we should make it do that. And I called Jack, real excited, and he got excited about it too. And that's what became Square. And that's a fantastic story, right? Because whenever I, you know, read or get the opportunity to have conversations like this with you, Jim, and and I, you know, have that conversation about, well, how did Square start, or how did Netflix start, or how did you know Twitter, whatever it was, it was always this like it happened to me, and I, you know, like the late fee for Blockbuster, Netflix story, right? Yours was, yeah, I lost this sale on this glass. Square was born, right? I mean, you know, so it's this, but but you kind of have to have the temperament to be open to see that opportunity. Like, I don't think of myself as an entrepreneur, you know, whatever the title is, right? Like, I just, that's not in my DNA. I can kind of uncover it and I might be able to vision it and think about it and have a great idea, but I'm not that then the person that would go and say, let's go do it. Well, I mean, Tiffany, I'd, I'd suggest that probably the reason you don't think of yourself as an entrepreneur is you've been led to believe this myth that entrepreneurs are somehow different than the rest of us, that they're somehow you know, these gifted visionaries or bold or young or, I don't know, better dressed or I, I, worse dressed or, <laughs> I, I, yeah, like we've all been fed this myth. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I've always felt an, like an outsider, even when I'm doing something that's been super successful. And what I realized is that I'd been led to believe that uh, these super successful people were somehow different than me. And what I discovered was that not only were they very, very similar, but in fact, most of the great successes were from people who were not qualified to do what they did. Uh, So, I mean, Jack and I weren't qualified to start Square. Neither one of us knew anything about payments. Um, I was never qualified to write that book. I would say I've never been qualified to do pretty much anything I've ever done, uh, at least in business. And um, it turns out it doesn't matter if you play a certain game. Like if you play a game where you're inventing new stuff, then by definition, nobody is qualified. So your lack of qualifications just makes you even with everybody else. So maybe you are an entrepreneur. You just have been using the word wrong. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe it's not too late for me. Let's say that. How about that, Jim? Let's go with that. Maybe it's not too late for me. Um, Well, I mean, that's the other thing. Like a lot of great entrepreneurs, you know, start in their 40s and 50s. So 
what's Absol absolutely yeah. absolutely uh and and you know that leads me right into the conversation around your book the innovation stack because i think it's a i'd, I'd love to hear what you know, we have the same publisher. So I, I, you know, I have my own experience of sort of what it was like to, to write a book. Is this your first book? Uh, it's my fourth, actually. I swore I'd never Four. write another book again. Um, and then uh, Herb Kelleher actually told me I had to write this thing. Um, it was, it was a homework assignment from one of my idols. <laughs> That's what happened to me. So mine wasn't Herb Kelleher. Mine was Seth Godin. And he's like, you got to write. This oh yeah. Book. Wow. I was like, got a lot of respect right. for Seth. Yeah. Yep. And I was like, nope. Oh, well, okay. The man has spoken. I'm in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's what I need to be doing. And writing a book um, sucks. Like, it's a brutal, arduous process. And in my case, I'm a slow writer. So I have to rewrite everything like eight times before it's readable. Um, yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> Uh, I, that's a whole nother. Well, we may have to do a podcast on just the whole experience of writing a book because that, that everybody asks, and and I I have to agree with you. Um, oh, let's do that. Uh, that would be totally. But you've cool. done four. Yeah. I've done one, and I'm petrified. People say it all the time. Oh, this time you're locked up. You know, you're on lockdown. You can't travel. Like write another book. I'm like, <clears throat> like oh, no, 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 no. Uh, like yeah. like make my whole life this prison of <laughs> of a homework and and shattered expectations. No, 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 no. Um, yeah, I'm look, good. I wrote my first I wrote my first two books because I was a freshman uh, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I was pissed off that my professor had written a bad textbook. Um, so I rewrote the textbook when I was in, you know, you know, undergrad in college. Um, and then my third book was a textbook on glassblowing because I was teaching a glassblowing class that had so many students and there were no textbooks. So I wrote the first textbook on the art of glassblowing. Um, and then this one, I, I really did not want to write this book. As a matter of fact, I tried to make it a graphic novel. My first draft of the book was a graphic novel and um, I showed it to Herb Kelleher and he hated it. Like he was offended that I would portray him as some like superhero. And uh, so Herb made me rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's a great story. Like I, how funny, like, you know, did he didn't want to be the superhero, but that, no, but, that because, lends, but that lends himself to who he is. I mean, he's yeah, so Herb was, leadership. Herb yeah. was a yeah. super down to earth, funny guy. And, and I was so awestruck by him and what he'd done that I, I fell right into the myth. Like the, the myth that I was actually trying to skewer, I was in fact perpetuating by doing a graphic novel format. And so, um, so at, at Herb's insistence, I uh, made it a, just a bunch of text. There you go. Well, that is a. But there's great still Nazis story. and a murder. I mean, there's there's some there's some juicy bits in there, but uh, you know, good business book should have some Nazis, a murder, a couple of apparently, secret deals. Apparently, yeah, that, I mean, gotta have some stuff like that. Well, so what what was the uh, once you sort of made it through and you decided, okay, no graphic novel, have to be a little more serious. Like I need to pull together what you know some would consider a business book. Um, I know a lot of it had to do with these multiple inventions and this stack of things you do that really helped set Square up specifically, right? To beat the competitors at the time, which may have been people like an Amazon or, or even someone like Southwest Airlines in, in the example, right? From a her perspective or Bank of America or anybody else. Like, you know, what, what was the secret sauce that, you know, that you were able to uncover, um, uh, well, you With know, it's, Square. it's, yeah. it, it's funny because you say like an Amazon, I mean, there's no other company like an Amazon. Like if Amazon competes with you, like that's the worst case scenario. Um, they're vicious and they did that to Square and we ended up um, winning, but I ended up confused at, as, as to why we won. 
So I started looking for other examples of companies that had, had similar experiences and uh, no company had survived an attack by Amazon, but I found other companies throughout history, uh, Southwest being one of them, Ikea being one of them. Actually, there are dozens of examples through you know, modern history and ancient history. There are hundreds or thousands um, of these companies that had had really, really uh, vicious battles and they'd all won against the odds. And I thought, well, wait a second, there's, there's a pattern here. And I saw this pattern. And that's what led me to Herb Kelleher. I'm like, I saw this pattern. And it was it was a bunch of historical data. And the problem with historical data is you can cherry pick it to prove anything. Like if you're if your selection bias is strong enough, you can prove anything uh, in history. And so I needed to validate it with somebody who was still alive. And most of the people I'd studied had already died. So Herb was still alive at the time. And I flew down to Dallas and spent an afternoon with him and basically just laid all my research out at his feet. And I said, you know, Mr. Kelleher, is this is this what you feel you went through at Southwest? And he was super excited. And he said, he's like, yeah, Jim. And, and he pointed out some stuff that I'd missed, but he was overall just like really supportive. And then he, he was like, you know, you, you, you have to tell your story. He's like, this, this needs to be said. So I got all excited and wrote a graphic novel, which Herb hated. <laughs> so then I rewrote it as a book. Um, well, unfortunately- it's a similar process to what I did. I kind of found companies like Southwest and others and, and, and even, even, uh, Square and, and I looked back and I deconstructed some of the decisions that those businesses made, uh, for my book to, to sort of tell that story of, and, and I kind of did the same thing. Like, I think one of the comments in your book is, you know, copying is a great place to start, but won't help you achieve transformational change. Yet many yeah. people focus in the beginning on copying and, and that isn't always the best thing. So maybe you can expand a little bit on that. Well, it's it's not the best thing if you're trying to do something new. Like if you're trying to do something that's a solved problem, definitely copy, right? So if you want to build a boat, I mean, there's some good boat designs out there. There are a lot of things that float in the water. Now, that doesn't mean you can't design a new boat, um, but it's probably going to be very similar to other boats because boats is a solved problem. You know, you just displace a certain amount of water and the thing floats and you keep it upright and you figure out how to steer it and propel it. And that's a boat. Um, but if you're doing something like a spacecraft, well, uh, that's you don't get to copy spacecraft, or maybe you can copy some NASA or SpaceX designs. But generally, you, you know, if you if you wanted to make something that you know hovered like a flying saucer, like you'd have to totally invent something new, um, and it's a different process. So I'm not trying to knock copying in the book, but what I say is basically that you've been really well prepared to copy, like your DNA your brain, your education, your society, your friends, like all the stuff that you've got at your, as a resource uh, helps you copy better. Um, I wanted to write something for people who are forced for whatever reason to not copy. In other words, mm-hmm. if you're doing something new, you don't get to copy. And then the world looks really weird and scary. And um, I always felt super alone. I always felt like an outcast. And, and I still do, frankly. When I do something new, I'm always like, ugh. You know, I wish I could just do what somebody else had done and had this guarantee that it would succeed. But if you're doing something new, you don't get that guarantee and it feels really awkward. So I wanted to write something for people who are willing to do something truly new because it's a weird feeling. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And the other thing you said uh, in the book, which I couldn't have agreed more with, literally, um, was, you know, one of the aha, there was kind of a couple of aha moments when I was writing mine. Um, and the one that has stood out the most for me that had the greatest impact when having conversations with people about the book 
was knowing when to do something is just as important as knowing how to do it. And I, one of the foundational uh, sort of thinking in Growth IQ uh, is sequence. The order in which you do it has absolute implications to the success or failure of whatever it is you're trying to do. So the example I used was Netflix. And I said, or you could, I could have even used Square, but if you say Netflix, if it had started in streaming, if it had started, you know, with original content, if it had started with all those things, it would have failed. It had to start with, well, in my opinion, anyway, it, it had to start with kind of mail order because everybody had DVDs or VHS players at the time. Not everybody had, to your point, an Apple iPhone in their hand. Bandwidth wasn't cheap. Not everybody had it. It wasn't ubiquitous. You know what I mean? And so the timing didn't allow it. Same thing would have been for Square, right? You could have launched it, thinkcars.com and pets.com and the first.com, you know, 2097 to 2004-ish. All those things are being repeated now because the timing is right, right? Everybody is much more attuned to shopping online and buying online and carrying their wallet on their phone and not in a credit card and all those things. Um, and so I'd love to hear... Uh, well, one, if you agree with that, but two, what landed you to the when? What was that aha moment for you around that particular t concept? So, I mean, yeah, I, I do a whole chapter on timing and how people don't appreciate it. Um, but then, you know, take it with a grain of salt because I launched this book, my three years of work, I decided March 10th was the best day possible to launch the book. That was chosen a year out. It was all set. I picked literally the worst day in a century to launch a new yes. book. That is the day the world shut down. Like everything, like all the PR, everything we'd done, you know, six months of prep to launch this thing, like wiped yep. out by a bad timing decision. So like, you know, anything like, first thing I say about the book is like, look, this, this is not a textbook. It's not a handbook. There's not a, there's, you know, you don't read it and go, oh, okay, McKelvey gives me the secret here. Um, I'm just another guy, you know, fumbling his way along. But what I would say is this, the awareness of timing, the ability to maybe not be the first, maybe, maybe you should be the first, but maybe you should be the second or third, or, or maybe you should be the first, but not right now. Um, just this appreciation because we have, um, again, society gives us, in addition to this high bias for copying, this high bias for competence, i.e. knowing how to do something is super important. And you can get a credential that says how to do something. But a lot of times, and, and married folks will agree with me here, like you could do the right thing at the wrong time and get a terrible result. Yes. So, I mean, yes. you know, take it from the guy that picked the worst day in a century to launch his new book. Uh, and uh, literally that I tell, I joke, and I didn't know that was the day that your actual day, your book launched. Yes, it was, it was are, literally the dead worst day, like a day, like even two days before or after would have been materially better. <laughs> oh, I remember the day because I landed that day from Sydney, Australia, and I got in right before you couldn't get in, right? And so I remember that day and I say to everybody, like they go, how are you doing today? I go, hey, it's just it's just March 10th. I like joke that it's just still <laughs> March 10th. <laughs> because yeah, in you, Southern you California, I'm still March on 10th. lockdown. Yeah, it's a yeah. long March 10th, right? And so my birthday was literally yeah. a couple days after that. And I feel like I didn't have my birthday this year. So we're going to redo it next year. And, I, and I'm going to I'm going to go back in age one year. That's it. You're allowed to not count. age if you don't get your birthday. It's it's an unknown <laughs> biological fact. But 
I've flown on my birthday internationally and left the day before. And then I, I land the day after, right. You know, when I go down to Asia, so it would miss the entire day. I'd be like, Oh, didn't have my birthday. I think that that you know, saved me about 10 years, I think. But, yeah. But if you do it wrong, um, you age twice, like you're oh, flying East, you could totally get screwed. Jim. <laughs> I thought I'd figured this out. Now I'm not going to go back and now it's going to be a wash. I'm actually yeah. my age. Damn. I thought I had an advantage. Well, let me go back to the bias and the and the confidence because I feel like the when of things, you know, I know Dan Pink wrote the book when, and it, it was a lot about like when you test kids, if you test them in the morning or you test them in the afternoon or when athletes train or when they actually, you know, are in competition or, you know, all of those things had material impact. And that was about kind of time of day. For me, when I was talking about, it, I literally meant it kind of market timing right? Consumer timing, the willingness for adoption of whatever it is you're doing. Um, uh, that, that's, that's sort of what I meant. Yeah. So the, the, the insight that I've had, aside from just being respectful of timing, um, is the feeling of when the right time is. And in every case, when I have been successful at an at something that was, you know, sort of temporal in nature, I've always felt like I've started too early. Like if I feel comfortable, like, oh, this is exactly the time to go, it's too late. Because the thing that gives me that feeling that now is the right time is the herd instinct, which is, you know, my peripheral vision and my, uh, you know, comrades all feeling the same thing. So if I feel totally in sync with my timing, I'm, I'm late. Uh, when I feel like, oh God, nobody's going to want this. This is way too early. The world isn't ready for this. And I go then, those are the ones that have worked out. And look, I'm not saying that this is true for everybody. I'm just saying it's true for me. Right time feels early. I, I think really, like, I think that uncovers where I have hesitation on entrepreneurship, right? It's like, I, uh, for me, like just my risk quotient personally you know, like, oh, it has to be perfect timing. What is that perfect timing? Like, you just got to go, you know, and you've got to well, trust the process. Yeah, but you were probably a super successful student. You were probably well accepted by your friends. Like, you you probably fit in well. And part of fitting in well means you're, you're super attuned to everyone around you. Um, and you also get rewarded for getting credentials and you get access for getting credentials. And, uh, you know, being credentialed is super cool in society. And if you, if you do that all your life, you become extremely uncomfortable whenever you're out of sync. Um, so it's, it's one of the reasons why, like, if you meet a lot of the entrepreneurs, they're sort of weirdos. Like if you meet like the, the super high performing entrepreneurs, like we're just, just a bit odd sometimes. And, and, and I think that oddness helps because we've always been a little bit out of sync so that when we get you know, when we get out of sync because we're doing something new, we don't feel as weird or maybe we just continue to feel weird. But what I didn't want to do, and, 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 and this is sort of the core reason I wrote the book, is that like I didn't write it for myself. I wrote it for a friend of mine who I know she's super competent and, and she has the ability to do great stuff. But whenever she comes up against a problem that she's never solved before, she stops. She says, well, I, I can't do this. And I say, I sit there and say, well, why can't you do it? She said, well, I'm not qualified. And I say, like, look, this problem has never been solved before in human history. So nobody is qualified to solve this problem. 
But that doesn't mean it's an unsolvable problem. It just means that by definition, the first person to do it is going to not be qualified. And, you know, right. uh, my example is always the Wright brothers. You know, neither one of them was qualified to fly the first airplane because humans have never flown before. So they couldn't be qualified. Now, if you want to fly a plane today, it's a totally different story. You can get, you know, all sorts of training and license. You got to pee in a cup and there's all sorts of stuff. But now it's possible. Back then it wasn't. And if you're going to be first, you will not be qualified. So what do you think... Uh... And I think that's great advice, right? Because I think there's all that imposter syndrome, right? I don't have the qualifications and that differs between men and women who are executives. And, you know, like interesting, your example was a woman. Most of the time, statistically, they'll say I'm not qualified. Well, men will go, it doesn't matter. I'm not qualified, which is by the way, what you said, right? Doesn't matter. Like I'm going to go for it. Um, and so that, yeah, that's and, and it's heartbreaking because this person that this person, I know her qualities. Like I know what she's capable of. And it, it breaks my heart to see her sitting on the sidelines. She disqualifies herself. And I was like, how do I reach people like this? And the answer is, well, I, I got to write something, you know? And so when, you know, when Herb told me to do it, I was like, okay, the, the reason to put myself through three years of hell to get a book, that's, <laughs> you know, decent out the door um, is because I'm a slow writer. It, I had to rewrite that. You're, you're reading the eighth draft of that book. I, I rewrote that thing eight solid times, ground up, um, before it got published. And the, the reason I went through that is because, like, this is a way to get talent off the sidelines. Like, if you're going to spend your entire life constrained by what society has already done, I mean, first of all, you'll be really well accepted because society is really cool about, you know, people who are like us. But but what if you run up against that problem that you have the capacity to solve, but you say, oh, I can't do it. Or you feel so uncomfortable when you start doing it that you quit early. Like I wanted to just reach out to people to that like that and say, look, um, when I did it or when Herb did it or when these other 50 people did it, you know, this is what they felt like. And, and you will be uncomfortable, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. Um, it, it, but we've been so trained to do everything by a checklist or have a guarantee or, oh my God. I mean, I, I had one publisher that wouldn't read the book because it didn't have any checklists. And, and I was like, wait a second, my book subject is doing stuff that's never been done before. How, how the hell am I going to write a checklist? Like how many items are on the checklist? And you know what they said? Five to seven. They said five to seven things should be on your checklist. That's their formula and was that for a just, business you, book. Uh, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah. It's, and that's that kind of copy what's been done, what's worked before versus, you know, and, and trust me, once again, we have to do another podcast about writing a book because <laughs> let's do it. That, mine, that sounds my, fun. Yeah. <laughs> mine was very similar. And, and although we both landed at, at portfolio, um, I had a very specific, uh, kind of feel of the book I wanted. And I fought for it because it was like, look, I, I wasn't actually a great student in school. I'm a visual listen learner, not a read learner. And so I wanted to create a book that had a different kind of feel to it that 
could be absorbed in short bursts because who sits and reads 300 pages in a nonfiction business book at one time, right? It's like, I want to keep them past page 50. Like that's, I think it's, that's what the stats are somewhere around 50 pages. If you get past 50, they're going to finish the book. So I said that to somebody and they said, well, then just write a 50 page book. <laughs> and I was like, brilliant. I should do that. <laughs> then they'll yeah. read the whole thing. Right. And of course, portfolio is like, yeah, that's not happening. But anyway. Oh yeah. Um, portfolio uh, I, hated the, hated yeah. the comic. Yeah. But, but I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, you've done, uh, it's, it's really a fantastic book. It's a fantastic read for, for entrepreneurs, for people who are trying to, um, reimagine what's possible coming out of this current situation, you know, how to be entrepreneurs during this COVID time, how to pivot and, you know, a, a lot of things, um, so, you know, as we begin to wrap this up, what would be your recommendations, knowing that we're we're in very uncertain times for people who are maybe have these ideas, right? That's never been so, done before. And, and they're considering timing. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing that I found. All of the entrepreneurs that I studied had a major cataclysmic event. Um, Square started in the middle of the last recession. Uh, the largest bank in the world was launched uh, in San Francisco the year before the great San Francisco earthquake. And, um, and now we find the world in COVID-19 and this crazy world that's, you know, partially shut down and nobody or nobody are experts in this. So I'm on the fed now and I get to work with the world's best economists and nobody has a PhD in world economic shutdown. Like it's just never been done before. And so what I say to people, you know, look, maybe I picked the worst day in a century to launch a book, but ironically, um, the subject of the book, which I was expecting would apply to maybe one in 10 people now applies to like one in two, because we're all in this world where copying everything that used to work no longer works. So what's happened is that the world has been thrown into a more inventive frame. And I'm not saying this is a good thing. Like I, 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 I love the fact that the world was working the way it was and I miss the old days and I'm sitting here, you know, covered in a glistening layer of hand sanitizer as we speak, you know, uh, but there is just no way to go back to that. And so we're all being forced to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. Now, what's that feel like? It's uncomfortable, but it also has some advantages. And if you handle it correctly, this is one of the best times in history to start something new. And the reason is not that, that you know, downtimes are, are, are somehow, you know, better for entrepreneurs. It's that they're worse for everybody who isn't an entrepreneur. So you are relatively less disadvantaged. In other words, it slows down everybody else. So you look like you're moving faster. Well, I, that's great advice. And so, you know, if, if, if you were to give the one, two things that you would leave with our listeners today about what they could do during this time, if they, maybe they have an idea, right. And they want to be bold and they want to go out and do something no one's done before. Uh, or even people who work internally. Like I think I'm more of an intrapreneur than an entrepreneur. And so they may work at a company and have an idea. What, what would be your one or two pieces of, of advice for them? Uh, one, recognize that you will be uncomfortable get rid of this idea that there's some guarantee. And it's a cheap thing to sell. Like, I mean, I, I know a company that'll publish your book if you give them a checklist. I can give you the name of them. You don't want that book because it doesn't work all the time. It's not, there's if you're gonna do something in a 
crazy world. You don't get, it doesn't come with a guarantee. So I know you've been trained all your life to expect, you know, certainty, but uh, you don't get that. So get over it. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, remember that the most successful people in the world were not qualified and were just as, you know, messed up as you are. Um, and, you know, I always feel like I don't come to the battle with all the stuff that I want. I always feel like I'm ill-prepared uh, and I'm too early. Um, and, and the times where it's worked out, now it doesn't always work out, but the times where it's worked out, you know, the only thing that gets you over those feelings is, is when you succeed. And when you succeed, the good news is you have the whole market to yourself. So this is the other pattern that I saw in the book is that the companies that follow this pattern and build innovation stacks end up literally owning an entire market. Um, and they become the biggest in the world. And it's phenomenal. Well, what great advice. So my piece of advice would be go get the innovation stack published on March 10th, 2020. <laughs> um, Jim worked hard, the eighth iteration of the book. But, I, you know, I almost feel like we need to write that blog about the process of writing a book. And the and for everybody who reads the blog, they get a, a copy of the comic book version of the book because you know, I think. Oh, that, I totally uh, do that. I totally do that. Well, actually, you know, I give away the comic. <laughs> like if you go to jimmckelvey.com, you can download a free copy of the comic because I wasn't going to throw the oh, whole thing excellent. out. I just, I had to, I had to kill all the parts with Herb because Herb didn't want him to be portrayed as a comic hero. So that's all been destroyed. Um, but uh, AP Giannini, who is a banker hero um, and fortunately was uh, not around to tell me I couldn't portray him uh, in a cape. Uh, I portrayed him in a cape, but men in the 1800s sometimes wore capes without irony or stretchy pants. So, uh, yeah, there's a there's a free comic for you if, if you want it. it uh, just go to jimmckelvey.com. Well, excellent. Well, thank you, Jim, so much for spending time with us. It was a lot of fun. That time blew by. Uh, so I appreciate all of your yeah, words Tiffany, of wisdom. Great show. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you for uh, joining yeah, us. And how can people follow up besides going to jimmckelvey.com? Any other social uh, media you want to share with people? No, not really. I mean, I, I, I will tell you, I don't use social media. Uh, if you get the book, that's really the only thing I do social media for. And I, I, I do that so that I have more sanity in my life. Not that I hate social media. It's just that I can't use it responsibly. So I don't. It's sort of like cocaine. I... <laughs> Just stay away from this stuff. <laughs> I think that's a first for me. I think I have to end on that. Jim, there you're go. awesome. Thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. Thanks, Tiffany. Bye-bye. I don't know about you, but I could have listened to that conversation for another 30 minutes. So much fun to talk to Jim. His experience with being one of the co-founders of Square and as well his perspective on how to be an entrepreneur but also that high bias for copying and competence and how you just, there is no right time. If you're gonna do something nobody else has done before. So my advice would be be bold, pick up a copy of the innovation stack uh, as well. We talked a lot about some correlations between growth IQ and innovation stack as well, but I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please subscribe, leave some feedback, share with your friends. I appreciate you spending time with us here today.